And as we gather together to worship, we want to ask the question today, what is life's great, greatest question? What really is it? I mean, you may be posing this in your own mind, and those that are joining us online may be thinking about life's greatest question. Is it, is it how long will I live? Uh, maybe it's how much money will I make in my lifetime? What is uh, the question in your heart and mind today? Is it, uh, will I get married? Am I going to be married? How long will I be married? Is it a marital question? Is it a relational question? Is it economic? Is it health? What is life's great question? Well, we're going to talk about that today. Here last Sunday, we were talking about the fact that when we were together, we talked about Lydia and her household. Here was Lydia... uh, who was a God-fearer, that was, that she worshipped the God of the Jewish faith, and yet, because it was not a recognized religious experience in the Roman Empire, nor was there ten men who were Jewish that were in Philippi, she had to meet outside the walls of the city, and she met with women there. Paul and Silas uh, went out there to, to see if there were any... Jewish people out there in a prayer time on the Sabbath and they found Lydia with the ladies that she was uh, worshiping with. And she, Paul talked to her about Jesus Christ. She came to know Christ as her Lord and Savior and she was baptized. Her household, likewise, had been instructed by the Apostle Paul and they too, upon their profession of faith, received Christ as their particular, as their Lord and Savior. So, we're going to pick it up in chapter 16 of of Acts, verse 16. And we see where once we, when we were going to the place of prayer, obviously Paul and Silas would, would take some time there on a number of occasions and walk by the river outside the walls of Philippi and just talk to people about Jesus Christ. But when they were going to this place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. We see in these verses Satan's strategy. For God had already begun to establish a beachhead, if you will, in the city of Philippi, which was a Roman outpost. It was one that had become kind of the diadem in the crown of of the Roman Empire where it was at Philippi. And so here was the Apostle Paul had already led Lydia and her household to the Lord and he began to continue his outreach efforts to those that would uh, listen to his testimony. Satan has two strategies that are very powerful. The first of these two strategies is employed here with this slave girl. And I think it's his 
is Satan actually is his, is his most effective strategy. Because Satan, before he attacks people, will try to join them. Satan is a joiner. He will join you in an, some kind of an unholy alliance. The whole time that Jesus was in his public ministry, Satan tried to unite with Jesus Christ. He knew who he was. The Bible says that, that Jesus uh, quieted him, Satan and his demon forces, every time they tried to identify Jesus. Because he wanted nothing to do with being identified with Satan and his minions. And so the same thing held true for the Apostle Paul. This slave girl, notice she was a slave girl, probably a teenager. Uh, she had been purchased outright by some men who were nothing more than spiritual pimps. They were pimping her because it was believed in that day in Greek society that anybody who had the gift of soothsaying or fortune telling had been uh, indwelt by one of the Greek gods. The god Apollo was embodied in a snake at Delphi. The name uh, Pytho was used for anyone in whom the gods were believed to have implanted their unique abilities of fortune telling or soothsaying. And Paul saw it right up that, that how the slave owners were using her for their own financial gain. They weren't interested in her. I mean, pimps aren't interested in people. They're interested in only what these people can produce for them. They live a life that is... Uh, uh, of a certain economic standard that is high and above the others that they are pimping. And so these, these people, these men who were using this girl for their own particular advantages financially, uh, that's what they got out of it. And they were excited about this slave girl. She kept this up for many days, but Paul finally got so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. Don't ever doubt the presence of demonic activity in the world today. It's intensifying. It's getting uh, more intense in certain areas of our globe. And you have probably encountered it in your own lives. When the owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, there she was, this girl, James 2.19, for those of you that believe that Satan doesn't recognize who Jesus is, James 2.19 says, you say you believe in one God, you do well, so be it, good on you. Demons also believe and tremble. What, what identifies believers in Christ Jesus from, from atheists is not just their belief in a, the existence of God, but in our Belief that it, Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. Amen. And so we see here where some folks today try to claim to be Christians. And in their own mind, it's in opposition to being a pagan. I believe, I, I guess I'm a Christian. It's a cultural thing with us as, as Americans. It, it's, it's who we are. We're Christians. I guess that's it. As opposed to being maybe Buddhist or Hindu or whatever else that's out there. The religion toujours, or even New Age. I'm, no, I'm not any of those things. I, I guess, I guess I would call myself a Christian. Some would say simply because I don't identify with anything else. But here, Paul 
being strongly annoyed because Satan was trying to do what he could to enlist people to follow himself by joining Paul and Silas. You'll find sometimes that that Satan in his most subtle of all, because the Bible describes him in Genesis 3.1 as the most subtle or the most crafty of all of God's creation. And he's a joiner at that point. If, if he can't outright attack you and, and win his battle, and if he thinks he can gain more leverage by simply joining your Bible study group or your church family or you as an individual in your devotional time, then he's going to do it. And that's how cults are formed, folks. Uh, they come in and they may celebrate Jesus Christ as the only begotten Son of God, but then as you get in, the, the lines get blurred somewhat. Well, he says that Jesus is the only way. And then when you are a part of that particular Bible study group, they begin to say, well, maybe there's other ways as well. Maybe Jesus isn't all he was cracked up to be. Maybe, you know, there's been a lot of people that have come in the name of God. I mean, maybe some of those are just as, as acceptable as Jesus. Let me tell you something. Satan is going to do everything he can to dissuade you from following Jesus Christ. If he can dissuade you by joining you and then leading you astray, he's going to do it. Paul wanted nothing to do with this. He knew what the ploy was. He knew what the plan was. He wanted absolutely nothing to do with Satan. So what's Satan's second strategy? It's on-out warfare. Ephesians 6, 12 and following, we're involved in spiritual warfare. We know that. But Satan will violently oppose Christianity and Christians particularly. Notice what they did when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews. So it was an ethnic issue. They're not one of us. They're not from around here. They're not not the same kind of people that we are. And then he says, and... They are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or to practice. You see, they're preaching Christianity. They're preaching Jesus Christ. And our government doesn't embrace that. Of all the pantheon of gods in the Greek and Roman pantheon, Christianity's not there. And so this is not even an authorized religious practice. Not only are they Jews, not only are they not from our society, from our culture, from our ethnic background, but they're preaching a religion that the Roman government doesn't recognize. You're seeing that all over the world today, by the way. You see it in China. You see it. You've seen it during the days of the USSR. You see it in any kind of totalitarian regime where Christianity becomes a threat and they outlaw it. Or they don't recognize it. And people who embrace it are either jailed, imprisoned, fined, or killed. And so you see it. This is Satan's second ploy. If he can't join them, he's going to fight them. I'd rather fight than switch, the old commercial used to say. 
And that's Satan. He will violently... The slave owners were deprived of their earnings and had the magistrates beat Paul and Silas and throw them into prison. This mob scene occurred, the Bible says, is that they were severely flogged. That means they were beaten pretty badly in their backs. Their backs were uh, bloody, broken, bruised, cut open. Uh, The flogging itself, as Jesus endured it, uh, sometimes would kill the people. And yet, as they were flogged, they were thrown into prison. Well, the Bible says here that not only were they thrown into prison, the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. So how does he guard them carefully? He re- when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell as far away from the prison doors as he could possibly put them in. In a dark, unlit damp cell and he fastened their feet in the stocks the stocks would prevent them from rolling over or from turning over there was only one position that they could comfortably be in and it wasn't comfortable at all but it prevented them from moving in any other kind of position and so here was their experience this is what satan did to prevent god from establishing a strong uh, a foothold in Philippi. But look at the Spirit's response. Verse 25 and following. About midnight, about midnight, he says, this is when the, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns. Midnight. It's been a bad day for them as far as their physical conditions. And in this physical condition, uh, they were in that dark, damp cell on this uh, floor. And I know they were in pain. You know they were in pain. They had, they had no medication whatsoever to relieve them. And yet, what were they doing? They were praying. And praying out loud, I will say, as the other prisoners were hearing them talk about the Lord. And then they sang hymns. C.H. Spurgeon said, Any fool can sing in the day. Songs at night come only from God. They are not in the power of men. What do you think they were singing? I I assume they were singing the Psalms, which were written to be sung. But what would you be singing? I'm thinking, how great is our God, perhaps? Amazing grace. Would you sing the contemporary version, My Chains Are Broken? I'm Now Set Free? Oh, I can imagine any number of songs, but they were praying out loud. And the Bible says here that the prisoners were listening to them, praying and singing. Well, I think that is a fantastic thing. 2 Corinthians 10.4, Paul said, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Some ten years later, Paul would write to the church at Philippi and simply say, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And so there they were. The prisoners were listening to their prayers. Prisoners were listening to them sing their hymns of praise. And then it's as though God says, man, I love this. I think I'll bring the house down. And the house shook and the earthquake shook and and the doors of the prison opened up and the shackles were removed and the stocks were opened. 
For all the prisoners, not just for Paul and Silas, but for everyone. The Bible says suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. All at once the prison doors flew open. Everyone was allowed to escape if they wanted to. Everyone, not just Paul and Silas, but everyone's chains were loose. Let me just tell you that when you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your chains are broken. The chains to whatever sin that you're bound to, to whatever relationship that, that is holding you back, to whatever experience that you have, whatever chain has tied you to something in the past, someone in the past, is broken when you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Man, it's what a blessing that is. The earthquake occurred, the doors were open, the shackles were re- removed. You know... In the Spirit of God, the Spirit's response was that He began to move in Philippi in the hearts of so many different kinds of people. You look at the different stratas. People wonder, is this nation divided? Of course it is. Is this world divided? Of course it is. How do we unite? There's only one way we unite and it's through Jesus Christ. Because in Him there's no Jew nor Greek, no male nor female, no, no rich, no poor. We're all one in Christ Jesus. And we have equal access to the Father through Christ Jesus. So those chains are broken. Oh my goodness. And so, as the Spirit responded, we see how everyone's chains came loose. But I want you to see the servant's circumstances. The jailer woke up. When he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Now, why would he do that? Because it's Roman law that if a soldier or prison guard who had given, been given prisoners entrusted to their care allowed these prisoners to escape, they would be required to suffer the same fate that these prisoners would have experienced. So you know there were, must have been someone in there or some more than one who had been given a capital punishment their life was going to be required of them. Because the jailer, after the earthquake, saw the open doors to the prison cell and knew my time is over here. So he drew his sword. But Paul shouted from inside the inner part, don't harm yourself. We're all here. All of us. Every one of these prisoners. No matter what they've done, they're here. The question that I raise to myself is, Why did the prisoners not leave? I would have. And I'll tell you what I think. Because if you have just experienced Paul and Silas praying to the Lord God Almighty and singing praises to Him, and during that process, at that moment, an earthquake coming in and breaking your shackles free and opening the jail doors, Don't you want to hang around and see what next is going to happen? I would. Man, this is great theater. What's happening next? Nobody left. Everybody remained still. The jailer called for lights. They brought them in. And he fell trembling before Paul and Silas. Obviously, this was something great. Something was going on that they could not. Define. 
He then brought them out and asked, Sir, what is the greatest question that life can ask? What is the greatest question that you and I can ever ask? Sir, what must I do to be saved? You see, he knew that he was going to step into eternity. And he wasn't prepared. Some of you sitting here today or listening online have struggled with this question. The question is, is, is suppose you're standing before Jesus Christ right now and, and he asks you, why should I let you into my eternity? What would you say? Well, I've been good. Uh, I, I was a member of a church. My name is on a church roll. My parents were Christians. That's good. No. Unless you say, I have trusted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and, and through the blood that He has shed on the cross for my sins, I have remission or the cleansing away of my sins because of His death and my faith in Him. Amen. And then Jesus said, come on in, brother. Amen. Come on in, sister. This is your family just waiting for you. But the servant circumstances... Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And what would Paul and Silas respond? Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your house. Now, the servants, uh, the jailer's house wasn't saved because of his faith. You need to understand that. Some people think that people are saved by proxy. You're not saved by proxy. You're not saved because your wife or your father, your mother, your son, your husband knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Salvation is a personal, intimate experience where we trust Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. The household was saved because the Bible specifically says that Paul and Silas spoke to them about the plan of salvation and how to be saved. And they Trusted Jesus Christ. Just like Lydia's household trusted Jesus Christ. Not because of Lydia, but because of Lydia bringing them Paul and Paul explaining them how they can know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And that's how. You and your household, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And they trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Wow. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Now, you want to know how to unite society through Jesus Christ. This jailer who has handed these two prisoners, Paul and Silas, who had just been beaten and bloody and battered and hurting and probably moaning every time he, he put chains or shackles on them. Now the same jailer is cleaning their wounds and feeding them at his table. He says, All the others in his house at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Immediately he and all his household were baptized. Immediately. Why? Because baptism is that public profession of faith. It is that that symbol of what we believe that Jesus did for us. That He died on the cross. That He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And I identified to Him by my faith in Him as my only begotten Savior and Lord. As my only Savior and Lord. The only begotten Son of God. So, here they were. He and all His household were baptized. 
the jailer brought them into the house and set a meal before them and was filled with joy. You know, a few years ago, Mary Jo and I were on the footsteps of Paul Tripp into Greece. And we were there at Philippi with Ed and Ann Wallace and Alan and Judy Wise. And we were, we were in Philippi. We were sitting in these stands that were... Uh, like an amphitheater, and right next to it was the jail that they said was probably where Paul and Silas were kept. And the tour, the, this particular guide was explaining about the, the, the experience that they had and how the earthquake came and they were released. And that's all she said. And so she asked, does anybody have any questions or any comments? I said, <laughs> I asked her, I said, ma'am, do you not know what the jailer asked Paul? She said, no, I don't. I said, well, let me tell you. The jailer asked Paul, sir, what must I do to be saved? And then I said, do you know what Paul's response was? She said, well, no. And I said, Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And I said, it was very important that Jesus Christ was seen as the only way to the Father and to heaven. Period. She said, well, I think I need to go back and read that. I think you do, I said. A Catholic priest that was on our trip with me afterwards came by and put his hand on my shoulder and he says, Tom, he said, you don't miss an opportunity, do you? I said, no. It was right there. It was right there. The timing was right there. So as, he's, as they're baptized, the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole household. So the servant circumstances, they rose above their circumstances. So many people have things in their health, in their finances, in their relationships and so forth and they allow their circumstances to get the best of them, to get on top of them. And why? Paul and Silas could have sat there and complained about the Roman government. They could have complained about the mob action. They could have complained about the magistrates. They could have complained about being beaten and thrown into this cell as innocent people that they were. But did they? No. They used the circumstance to praise God and to pray, thanking Him for where they were. God used their circumstances to strengthen their faith. He used their circumstances to bring others to the Lord. He used their circumstances to strengthen the church. How did He do that? (coughs) Excuse me. When it was daylight, the magistrate sent the officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. Paul said, not so fast. Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial. Even though we are Roman citizens. And threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. Now why did he do this? And why did he not mention, these two mentioned that they were Roman citizens before the flogging? Well, the Holy Spirit probably didn't allow them to do that. 
But after the flogging and sitting in that jail cell, the Lord revealed to them, here's what you need to say. Why? Because it gave them credibility and it gave the church credibility. The Bible says the officers reported this to the magistrates and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. Alarmed. Let me tell you, that is not even a good word to use here. The Bible should be scared stiff because when Roman authorities uh, wrongfully imprison or punish Roman citizens, the Roman authorities are held accountable and they are likewise beaten, sometimes killed, executed. So, now we've got an interesting story. So when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them, apologize profusely, hat in hand, and escorted them from prison, requesting them to leave the city. Again, Roman citizens who have not uh, violated a law cannot be required to leave a Roman Roman city. So here's Paul and Silas. They're standing up as straight as they possibly can after the flogging. And the magistrates are escorting them out. They want everybody in the marketplace to see them. They want everybody to to note that they are innocent. And these magistrates obviously did something wrong. Paul made sure all the charges were dropped. No further actions would occur from the magistrates against the church. Very important. Because this church plant in Philippi was a fledgling church and it was in its infancy. It could have easily been destroyed, been wiped off the face of the earth. But I want you to see what it says here. After Paul and Silas came out of prison, they were, remember, being encouraged to leave the city. They said, no, I think not. We're going to stop off at a friend's house. They went to Lydia's house. Lydia, the seller of purple was one that we see who became the center part of Philippi. Her house became the headquarters. And they, the Bible says, they met with the brothers and sisters. Where did these brothers come from? Lydia had a household full of women. And now we have the jailer. I think some of the brothers may have come from not only the prison... They could have come from the household of Lydia. They definitely came from the family and household of the, of the jailer. And I'm sure they came from some of the prayer meetings that were being held outside the walls of the city. All of a sudden, the Spirit of God is moving in such a profound way that people of all strata, all walks of life, and, and all uh, persuasions are beginning to know that Jesus is the Christ, the only begotten Son of the living God. You see that? God moved in the hearts of different economic levels of people in Philippi. There was Lydia, the seller of purple. That, that cloth that is so expensive that came from a dye in Thyatira. And there she was as a merchant selling to the upper echelons of society, royalty and the wealthy. God moved in her heart. Then God moved in that middle class heart of the Philippian jailer and moved not only in his heart but in his family and friends. And then God moved into the slave girl's heart. 
at the lower end of the economy. And then God moved in the heart of the prisoners and the families and the household servants. You see, this God that we serve through Jesus Christ is a God who loves everyone equally. He doesn't love anyone more than He loves someone else or less. He loves us equally. And the beauty of that is, is it doesn't matter where you were born, what your circumstance, what your situation is, who you are, what you've done in past, what really matters is do you want to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. He encouraged them all, and then he left. He would write a wonderful letter to the church at Philippi some ten years later. Well, my question is to you today. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Maybe you've never trusted Christ, but you're a God-fearer. Maybe you're not an atheist. You want to say you're a Christian because you're an American or it's what your family is, but you've never trusted Christ. If you don't know Christ, you're not saved. You're not saved. If you were standing in front of Jesus today and he asked, why should I let you into my heaven? You'd have to say, I don't have an answer to that because I've not trusted in you, Jesus. You're not going to heaven because of your good works. Can't do it. You're not going to go to heaven because you're better looking or better uh, uh, have greater accomplishments than other people. That's not going to work. You can only go to heaven because of Jesus Christ. And maybe you'd like to trust Him today. And and some of you have trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior in your living rooms and somewhere else. But you've never followed Him in public profession of faith. You've never told anybody that you're a Christian. You've never told the public. We have a church family that would love to hear from you. Maybe you're looking to be baptized. We have some being baptized this week. To trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Well... You're looking for a church home? We have a family here that you'll just fall in love with. And they'll fall in love with you. And then for the, all the rest of us, this is a time of rededication and renewal to lift our hearts and minds up to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll be here at the front to pray with you at the end of this. Won't you stand with me as we pray? Our most gracious Father, we come before you today. I know there are those here today who are listening to this message or who are online who have accessed this message. Lord, that would like to ask life's greatest question. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, thank you. It's that simple. It's that simple. So, Lord Jesus, today we come before you, knowing there are decisions being made as we speak, knowing there are people coming to you, Lord Jesus, to yield their lives to you completely and wholly, without exception. Thank you, Father, for that. Be with us today. 
And when we walk away from this building, may we walk away closer to you than when we came. And thank you, Father, for these decisions. For it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless and keep you, and may God just absolutely enrich your lives in the days ahead. God bless.